Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Hey, it's Clint Washington from Snap, and I've got big news. Snap Judgment, live, rocks Nashville's Ryman Theater, Friday, March 16th, and I'm bringing the best storytellers in the world. Laugh, cry, laugh some more. Amazing night out, and yes, she's coming. The funniest woman in the world, Jen Colbert. I do my hunting in the lady forest. Jen Colbert rocks a brand new story. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. I've never gotten applause for it before. If you guys could call my mom, that'd be awesome. She's still pissed. Snappers. Put on your traveling shoes. Today's story lands in Iraq, but not the Iraq you're thinking of. Before the American Wars, before Saddam Hussein, before all of that, we're going to the 1940s. And at the time, a large Jewish community thrived in Baghdad. Avraham Nissim remembers celebrating Shabbat as a little boy. Snap judgment. You must understand, we were Jews in Iraq, religious Jews. In Baghdad, we had good relations with the neighbors. They gave us the feeling that we could live there in peace. Every Friday night, we would all sit together and sing songs for Shabbat. Inside the house, there was a courtyard, so we wouldn't go out much. My family, Dad, mom, brothers, we were ten all together. We sat around a big table. My father would do the Kiddush, the full Kiddush, completely. And then we sang Eshet Chayel. We ate meat, fish, rice, then sweets and chocolates. The entire family would sit all night and sing and enjoy, and we would long for Israel. From the day that I opened my eyes, we would even pray to the direction of Jerusalem at the synagogue. We would sing about Jerusalem. We had a feeling that without Jerusalem, we would not exist. But they weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. 
Iraq had banned Jewish immigration there. After the state of Israel was created in 1948, being Jewish in Baghdad became less and less safe. Jews were dismissed from civil service, their businesses boycotted, and a Jewish businessman was arrested and publicly hanged for selling goods to Israel. Yes, sometimes there were disturbances, but we had everything we needed. One spring morning, when Avraham was five years old, there was noise in the house, people running around. His parents woke him up in a frenzy. My parents saying we need to get our things together, get dressed, get the suitcases out. We need to go to the synagogue. The synagogue was the meeting point where all the Jews were gathering. As a young child, I of course was afraid from all the noise. We did everything so fast. The year was 1950. The Iraqi government had just passed a bill that for one year only gave Jews permission to move to Israel. At the synagogue, men were handing out immigration paperwork. Avraham's dad signed over his family house to the government in exchange for his permission to leave. A massive airlift was being coordinated by an American organization, the Joint Distribution Committee, which would help evacuate 130,000 Iraqis from Baghdad to Israel. We boarded only with the clothes that were on us, and a few other small clothes in a small suitcase. And all of the rest of our possessions we left in Iraq. The airplane was packed full. Avraham sat on the floor in his pajamas, squashed between his seven siblings. Once they got into the air, the flight attendants served breakfast. And I chucked it straight away. We hadn't eaten something like this, sweet porridge. Nobody ate anything. We didn't eat, we didn't drink, but it was fun. Look, I was five, we sang songs. This was for us the dream that they spoke of at home, and it came true. When we descended from the plane, my father kissed the ground. He bent down and kissed the ground. And I don't understand what dad is doing kissing the ground. I had seen him when he kissed mom, but the ground? But I saw mom was doing it, and my big brother and my sisters were doing it. So I also kissed it. For us, Israel was our mother. They stood up from touching their lips to the ground and felt the land, their homeland, beneath their feet. The next thing they knew, they were packed into a bus and headed for Sha'ar Ha'aliyah, a tent city where thousands of new immigrants started their lives in Israel. They took us in immediately and spread us with DDT. It was as if they took us into a cage, like cows, and we wanted to escape but they spread us from every direction. We had red eyes, we were crying, we breathed in gases. It took us some time to recover, it wasn't easy. Look, the conditions were very bad. There was aliyah, immigration from all different countries. The family was then sent to a dusty, underdeveloped town near Tel Aviv, Ramat HaSharon, without jobs, money, or even the ability to speak Hebrew. Avraham and his siblings spent their days collecting food, playing games, and wandering the streets. We found an orchard of oranges, and we ate oranges. It saved us. Today, my favorite food is still oranges. One day after breakfast, Avraham went for a walk. 
He heard loud music and followed the sound until he saw two men standing outside a truck. The guys in the beginning spoke with us nicely. They were tall, beautiful, they spoke nicely. They were wearing kibbutz outfits, shirts, short pants and sandals. The men were handing out candy. I hadn't eaten sweets for a long time. I took the sweets and they told us, come and we'll give you a little trip. I thought I was going to have fun with them. I got into the truck. There were about 10 or 12 children there. We were driving and driving and driving. I said, we want to go home. And they said, we'll take you home when the time comes. But it didn't end. I got up and I shouted, I want to go home. I screamed, but the crying didn't help. And they took us. I spoke in Arabic. They didn't exactly hit us. They pushed us. I had a feeling that this wasn't the first time they did this. Seven hours went by. The sun went down. Every once in a while, the van stopped and kids were taken off. And then the van would start moving again through the darkness. By the time Avraham got out of the van, it was the middle of the night. We got down from the vehicle. A man took us to some house, knocked, and an old man and woman opened the door. They told Avraham these would be his new parents. This is your father, and this is your mother. The house was nice. There were tables, nice couch, nice chairs. I even saw a plate with fruits on the table. That couple, maybe they were nice, but I was so angry. That night, I smashed all the windows in the house. They finally caught me, and from all the exhaustion, I slept. When Abraham woke up the next day, his new parents told him he had a new name. In Iraq, I was called Sabah. His new name in Israel was Avraham. There, they dressed me in tall, nice shoes and pants and shirts, things that I didn't have, even underwear I didn't have. Did they ever comment on the situation? I really don't know if they knew it was a kidnapping. Avraham was at Kibbutz Elon, on lush green land right near the Lebanese border. Back then, in Israel's early days, Kibbutz life was the foundation of the new Israeli society. It was communal utopia. Every day in the morning I would get up, and until the evening I would wander around the paths of the kibbutz and next to the bus. Each bus that came, I would look. Maybe mom and dad would come and get me. I looked in the windows of every car that went by. Every car. I always worried, why don't they come get me? From time to time, I would think, maybe they didn't want me. As if they threw me out that maybe they don't want me anymore. I assumed that there were other kids in my situation at the kibbutz, but they didn't talk about it. No one ever talked about it. One morning, I'm wandering the farms, the kibbutz. I was dressed a lot nicer and better now. From far off, I see a bus arriving. I get close to the bus, get 30 or 40 meters towards it. And I see someone that I recognize getting down from the bus. I get another step closer and I got stuck. I suddenly saw my father and I was in shock. I could not move. And he got down off the bus. He also saw me. And the same thing. He also froze and was standing at a distance of 30 or 25 meters. And I stopped breathing. 
I went another step closer, and I see that it's my father. I ran to him and hug him. We wept, the two of us. My father was tall. His eyes were bright, but I saw my father was tired. It's not the same father. And I say to him, why did it take you so much time? I'm looking for you every day, he says to me. Every day I go to a different kibbutz. I look every day in a different place or two. And he hugs me and we cry. He said, I will not leave you. Then he said to me, I want to speak with the manager of the kibbutz. My father was angry with them and said, how have you done such a thing to take a child and not tell the parents? He asked me to take him to the man in charge of the kibbutz. Abraham walked his father to the kibbutz director and together they walked into his office. But the director told Abraham to wait outside. He said, I will go talk to him and then I will come back straight to you. I could not sit, I could not stand. I was just going back and forth, thinking that I am finally with my father, but there's still a chance that he could leave me. I was just lost in my thoughts. Reunited at last? We'll see. On Snap Judgment, the lifted episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the lifted episode. When last we left Afraham, he was waiting to be reunited with his father. Snap Judgment. It was about half an hour that he was gone, but it felt like 10 hours to me. That half an hour was the difference between life and death. I didn't know what would happen next. Avraham's father finally walked out of the office and approached his son. And he said to me, Look, here in the kibbutz you have a warm house, you have a bed, you have shoes and clothes. You should stay here, study. You will grow and become big, and then I will take you home. I will come visit you every three weeks with your mother. Look, my father is not a primitive man. He is a logical man. He made a calculation. One plus one. If dad says the kibbutz is good, it's good. Avraham's father and the kibbutz manager made a deal. Avraham would stay at the kibbutz, and he'd go home on the holidays. He'd move back in with his family in Ramat HaSharon when he became a man, by Jewish custom, when he turned 13. At the start, he came to visit every three weeks. Actually, in the beginning, during those three weeks between the times my father visited, I was very nervous and angry. I would get dirty on purpose. I acted out. But then, he came as he said he would. He brought candies and sweets. My mother made cookies filled with dates. It's an Iraqi sweet. That was the best thing I could have gotten. For a child, there's just nothing better than that. He stayed with the couple for about a month and was then transferred to Kibbutz Givat Brenner in central Israel. There, he slept in a hall with other children. The dining room was the heart of the place, where you would see everyone. It was a huge place for 500 people. A little noisy, but it felt like being in a big family. 
It was a social place to meet people, where I actually built my social circle. At a kibbutz, you have to learn how to take care of yourself. I never expected that someone else will come to do what I need to do for myself. They expressed that by saying, if you want something, you work for it. You work for four hours and study for four hours. You need to work for your food. You need to work. If I did something bad, I would get beaten by the manager of the kibbutz. In the beginning, I rebelled. I wasn't able to work for hours like the other kids. But of course there was longing, of course. We're human. I missed my family. I was dying to get to the holiday to visit my family. Every holiday was a special experience, to be with the family again. The first Hanukkah after he had been kidnapped, he got permission to go back to his family. On the way there, I was full of excitement, but also fear because I didn't know if there was still just a tent back there, if I would have a bed, if there was food. All these things I got used to at the kibbutz. I was so excited to see my siblings too, because I almost forgot about them. Also, I knew that I lost the memory of my mother's touch. When I got home, I didn't know who to hug first, my mother or my father. I was so excited. I spoke Arabic with my parents. It was almost like he had never left, almost like he had never been kidnapped, as if he hadn't been assigned a new mother and father, as if his name hadn't been changed, as if instead he had been just shipped off to boarding school. But everyone treated me like an adult. They respected me and valued me. They spoke to me like an older child. I was a kibbutznik. It's a serious thing. I was the cream of the crop. Like, for example, if I was sitting at the table together with my family, my brother would take the meat from his plate and would give it to me. You understand what's happening? My brother would care for me more than for himself. Avraham went back to the kibbutz when Hanukkah ended. His parents started visiting less often, about every three months. But Avraham didn't mind. He was enjoying kibbutz life. He was popular, he played sports, he worked hard and ate well. Then, after he turned 13, he returned to his family. When I returned home, I wasn't the same Avraham. I got a lot of confidence. I mean, I could do everything that I wanted, whatever I felt like doing. Everyone wanted to be my friend. Everyone loved me. Everyone wanted to be with me. Once Avraham returned home, he became kind of a liaison between new immigrants and Israelis at school. He uses the Hebrew word gesher, bridge, to describe his role in Ramat HaSharon. He got married and had five kids with his first wife, then two more with his second wife. What I lost in Iraq, I gained in Israel. Did you ever confront the kibbutz manager, anyone in charge at the kibbutz, about what happened, even if it was much later on? No, never. I was a young child. Even I didn't know I was kidnapped. I didn't have such vocabulary. I knew I was in an uncomfortable situation. But I didn't know then what I know now. Eight years ago, Avraham was home reading the news and learned about a piece of hidden history about other people like him, missing children of Jewish immigrants from Arab countries. Many siblings and parents in Israel said their kids were stolen right after birth at the hospital, that nurses told parents their kids had died. 
Fadida came to Israel from Morocco in 1948 amid a wave of mass immigration. For decades, hundreds of these new immigrants, mostly Jews from Yemen and other Arab countries known as Mizrahim, claimed their children were kidnapped. It's known as the Yemenite Children Affair. But it affected families from Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, the Balkans, and Iraq. When I read it, I had this moment of, whoa, this also happened to me. But it was confusing because my parents did find me. So how could this also be the same story? I was shocked. I didn't want to believe it. How long did it take you to understand that you yourself um, had been kidnapped and part of this larger scandal? There were a few days after I saw it on the news. I had to walk around and ask questions. It was not a nice thing to talk about. It was very painful and emotional. I was the director of the community center then, and a journalist from the community newspaper interviewed me. Then I started to tell my own story, though not to hurt the country. I'm angry about the way I was treated. It was too traumatic. You don't. You just don't make a state that way. And do you ever go back to the scene of the kidnapping in Ramat HaSharon? Now it's an electricity point of an electric company. When I go by it, I get an electric shock. <laughs> like a physical shock of electricity? It's emotional. It's very difficult to describe. But it's in the heart. An electric shock to the heart. I see it every day, twice a day. I see it from my car either on the left side or the right side when I'm driving. The country did this because they believed that they could save the children. They did it because they loved us. That's why I don't come and say Israel is not good. I love Israel. I thought in three wars. Israel gave me a lot. But my case of being kidnapped wasn't like all the others. I was lucky that my father found me. Those who were kidnapped and never found, that hurts my heart. There were hundreds who were kidnapped, but very few who were kidnapped were able to go home to their families. Many waited and waited. They made a mistake. It was a mistake. And um, did you ever have a conversation about it with your dad? Like, Later on, did you talk about the kidnapping or his decision? No, 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 we never spoke about it, ever. I tried to hide it, not to talk about it. Look, it's a decision that's very... If there was the same situation again, I would do the same thing. Because we live in a world where we want our children to get the best. Today I have a feeling of confidence, and I also give it to others. Yes, the kibbutz kidnapped me, but it gave me something in return. It's a strange world. Thank you, Avraham, for sharing your story at the Snap. Love as well to Noel Eschel for vocal translation, and Tal Janner Klosner and Shira Rubin for help with the translation. Original score by Renzo Gorio. That piece, it was produced by Sheena Sheely.
Okay, now, let somebody know. Hours of storytelling awake. Tell them about the podcast. This podcast available at snapjudgment.org. And if you are lucky enough to live in Nashville, St. Louis, or Kalamazoo, know that Snap Judgment Live is coming to town with a night of storytelling that will knock you on your what's it. Laugh, cry, laugh some more. Feel all the feels. It's the best night out ever. The world's top storytellers, backed by the Beats of Bells Atlas. Get tickets while you still can at snapjudgment.org. I can't wait to see you there. And next week, Snap Judgment brings an audio event. We're calling it Counted, an Oakland story. It's been over a year in the making. Let the universe know. We can't wait for you to hear it. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could wave your hands in the air. Even more, you could shake them as if you did not care and you would still still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is WNYC Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap.